23 is written, written by Asaph, and we don't know a whole lot about Asaph. Um, he's mentioned in a couple other books. He's, he wrote uh, Psalm 73 to 83. Um, he's mentioned in Nehemiah, mentioned in Second Chronicles as a temple worship leader. So we don't know a whole lot about this guy. Okay, He's a worship leader, but we don't know much else. But as we can read from Psalm 73, we read that he's very honest. He tells it like it is, okay? And he presents this dilemma that he's going through that we've all, we've all been there, and that's, like I already said, it's the question that he's asking, why do the wicked prosper? And I would read this psalm, but Dad's already done it, so we'll save that time today. Um, but, but I'm just going to go through, and, and we're going to walk through this psalm with Asaph, Thankfully, this sermon, I mean, this psalm basically preaches itself, okay? So, I don't have to do much this morning, but, but there's three sections in here that Asaph clearly lays out, much like many of the psalms. He starts off, and he's very discouraged, and then he kind of makes this, this discovery, and then he goes back, and he's, he makes this full 360, okay, when he's talking in this psalm. So, I, I've labeled it like this. He starts off with this little intro, and then he goes into doubt. So Asaph's doubt, and then he makes a discovery, and then he, then he has a devotion or a rededication to God, okay? So doubt, discovery, dedication. So that's kind of what we're going to look at today. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then we'll, then we'll dig into it. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity that I have to, to preach from your word. I pray that uh, the, the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be would be acceptable in your sight, and that, that we would learn and be encouraged from Asaph in this psalm this morning together. Thank you for the wonderful group of, of uh, people that you brought into your house this morning. In your name I pray, amen. So, he starts off in verse 1, okay, and he's very, very discouraged. He's going to show us that this journey of doubt and despair and, and how God brings him through this. But, he's, but he starts off, like I said, with this doubt, just an overwhelming doubt. And I think the reason it's so encouraging to me is because it's some, somewhere where I've been, okay? So he starts off in verse 1. This is at the plateau of this circle. I want you to think of it as a circle today. And Asaph's at the top of the circle, about to go into doubt in verse 1, okay? It's just easier for me to think of it like that in pictures, so that's what I'm going to try to do. He says in verse 1, Truly... God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Okay, that sounds promising enough. God is good, right? We know God is good. So Asaph is starting off, uh, and he's starting off with this, this bottom line, God is good. This is at the core of Christian theology, okay? So Jesus, obviously, he told the rich young ruler uh, that only God is good. The book of James says every good gift is from above. And the gospel itself is often called the good news, okay? So God is good. The Psalms talk about the goodness of God many times. Psalm 25 says, good and upright is the Lord. Psalm 34 says, taste and see the Lord is good. And Psalm 107 says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. God's goodness is at the heart of Christianity, okay? And those are just a couple examples of where the Bible says God is good, but it's mentioned a bunch of times, and Asaph is pointing right out, right at the start of this circle, God is good, but he doesn't stop there like these other sections. He says, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, okay? So he starts off, and he says, yes, God is good, but he's good to those who are pure in heart. This very encouraging 
uh, uh, statement. Now, he mentions the word heart six times throughout this passage. We'll see this repeated over and over. And I think the reason for that is because he's so distraught, this problem is, is affecting him to the deepest part of his, of his soul, his being, it's his heart. It's just, it's very discouraging and it's weighing on his heart heavily. Okay? So he's more directional. It's this inward struggle um, for him. So he's going into this doubt. The prosperity of, of the wicked is affecting him on the deepest level. So he starts on the goodness of God. However, this, this problem doesn't just disappear. He says, yes, God, you are good, but that doesn't make me feel any better, right? Um, I, I don't know however, how many of you remember last year. I'm not sure how well known this was up here, but uh, last year, a member from the, the, the coffee evangelistic team, Matt Clemens, passed away in a car accident on his way home from church just to grab something. Kind of like a Jim Elliott type story. This guy's very young, very into uh, serving the Lord, had a very young wife, newborn child, passed away all of a sudden, right? His brother was on my hall. And I just remember questioning, why does, you know, and and the other person in the accident was fine, if I remember correctly. And you just often feel like these things happen where maybe uh, drunk drivers will hit a Christian family and walk away without a scratch, or, or this person that'll be in your work for years and years will uh, be deceitful and he'll get the promotion instead of you maybe, or, or somebody in school will cheat and they'll get an A and I can study and, and get an F, you know, and you feel like the, the wicked are just always prospering. And I remember uh, Matt Clemens, his brother on my hall, was, was encouraged and he, and he brought up this passage, and he says, God is good, and we have to remember that. And so, the, as even though Asaph's going into doubt, we just have to remember, we have to start on the goodness of God and stay there, okay? So he's going, but he goes into doubt. Asaph goes into doubt. He goes into verses 2 and 3, and we don't have time to talk about all these verses today. It's a 28-verse it's a psalm, and we're just going to kind of have to summarize quickly this morning. But he goes into verses 2 and 3, he's very envious. He feels like this path that he's on, much like Pilgrim's Progress, right? This path that he's on is crumbling beneath him. So verses 2 and 3, My feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He doubts God's providence here, okay? He envies the wicked and their lifestyle. He envies them so much, he starts describing them in verses 4 to, four to 8 there or 4 to 12. So the first couple of verses, 4 to 7, he's talking about their appearance, the wicked's appearance. You can see their bodies are fat and sleek. They're so wealthy. They never have to worry about hunger. They're, they're very full. Uh, they're not in trouble as others are. Um, their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. And then verses 8 to 12, he, so he's talked about their appearance, and now he's talking about their speech. They set their mouths against the heavens. Their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is their knowledge in the Most High? Basically, he's saying these people are so confident that their speech is not going to be heard by God, it doesn't matter, right? They're saying even if there is a God in the Most High somewhere up there, how can he know? You know, he's so far up there, even if he exists, he can't, he can't know our speech, so who cares? And he sum- summarizes this, this first section of doubt in verse 12. He summarizes it all, his, his discouraging thoughts, his doubtful thoughts, this downward descent into doubt. He, dis, he encompasses that in verse 12 when he says, Behold, 
These are the wicked, always at ease. Their riches increase. Okay? So, if, if we read that, and if the psalm stopped at verse 12, the psalm sounds pretty good for the wicked. Okay? Sounds pretty encouraging for the wicked. They're always at ease and their riches increase. But then, he kind of goes into this discovery. Okay? So, he's, he's so discouraged here in verses 11 and 12, he kind of feels, sometimes I feel like this too, and that's you feel like you're on God's side, but he's not on yours type of thing, right? You feel so discouraged that you start to doubt God and you think, I, God, I feel like I'm on your side, but you're not on mine. What's going on here? You're helping out the wicked, but where, where's the help for the Christian here? And Mr. Thompson, 1919, I, this is what I think, the World Series, do you know what happened then? Chicago Black Sox scandal, okay? The White Sox supposedly had eight players throw the World Series on purpose. Um, and I, I kind of feel, this is a silly illustration, but I feel like Asaph would kind of feel like that ninth guy on the field at this point, right? Everybody's playing for the other team, and he feels like he's all left alone out there. That's kind of the picture that I get from Asaph here when he's talking, and he just kind of feels like God why are you showing your back to me? Why are the wicked so prosperous and the Christians are not? And, and his attitude here really comes down to one thing, idolatry. Colossians 3.5 says, covetousness is idolatry. And he's coveting here. He's coveting their lifestyle. He's coveting their appearance. He's coveting their speech. And this is really the problem here. This is the core. And this is why it's so encouraging to me is because this is something I struggle with all the time. I long for a, a materialism or I long for an a easier life like the wicked have. And, and I long for, um, I don't know why, but it's just something I struggle with. I, I enjoy looking at celebrities and thinking, wow, they have such a fancy, fun life. Why can't I have a little of that? And, and this is kind of the same attitude that Asaph has here. He longs for materialism. He longs for easier life. He's coveting, okay? So that's, that's the doubt section. He's doubtful. And then in verse 13, he makes a discovery, okay? He says something so crazy in verse 13 that he kind of wakes himself up. So he says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. So he's saying here in verse 13, Maybe all I've done for God has been for nothing. Maybe this has all been for vain. Obviously that's not true, but that's how he feels. So he's saying maybe all my obedience, all my uh, righteousness, all my... Uh, listening to God and following him, maybe that's all been in vain. Have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence? It's so crazy, he starts to wake him up and his, he, he starts to realize that his previous description, this doubtful description of the wicked has all been for, it's all been exaggerated, okay? Obviously, not all unbelievers are wealthy. Not all unbelievers are going to die peacefully like it says there. And he's kind of, his eyes are starting to open to this, Okay? So this problem in verse 14 starting to beat him up more and more. For all the day long have I been stricken and rebuked every morning. He knows he's wrong. Verses 15 to 16. When I speak thus, I would have betrayed a generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. There's a difference here we need to make sure we know. There's a difference between doubt and disbelief. Obviously, Asaph is not a disbeliever here. But he's just very doubtful. He's struggling with this jealousy of the wicked so much. And he's just doubting. And this is kind of uh, an encouraging thing too. This is how we know he's so honest is because he's taking this to God 
and he's, and he's letting God know how jealous he is. And this is happening, his jealousy is happening because he's thinking purely emotionally and not scripturally, okay? This is something I think happens to a lot of us. We, we tend to put the blinders on and, and look at our small, insignificant problem in life instead of taking a step back and looking at what God has in the big picture, okay? Very scary lady, eighth grade teacher, Mrs. Billings, to me. I was horrible at math, always the kid in the class that would never want to say I didn't understand it because everybody else did, you know. And she would always say, you don't understand it because you have the blinders on and you're looking at this small part, maybe the division or whatever, instead of taking a step back and looking at the problem as a whole, okay. That's why so many people cause accidents because when they're driving, they're looking at this phone that's directly in front of them instead of the road, what's ahead of them, okay. And, and that's kind of the accident that, that Asaph is, is having here. He's thinking emotionally and he's looking at his own problem instead of looking back, taking a step, taking a breather, and looking at Scripture and seeing what God has. So he takes a step back here, and all of a sudden, verse 17, everything shifts, okay? So this, this doubt in this circle, all of a sudden, it's pivoted right at the bottom, and everything shifts, and he's going to start going back up, okay? Verse 17, look. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. So in our words, okay, what's the sanctuary of God? Well, he goes to church. Asaph goes into church, and he realizes all of a sudden, wow, I've been wrong. I can discern their end now, okay? So all of a sudden, his whole focus shifts, and God is placed back at the center of his worship, okay? That's the goal of our worship. It's why, it's why everybody's here today. It's why, that's why you've all come. Hopefully, that's why you're here, is because you want God to be at the center of your worship this morning. You want to be refocused, put back after a hard week of, of doubt and trial. You want to be put back on the road that's going to God and that's pointing to God. And that's kind of what's happened here. He's focused back on the Lord. He's gone back into church, and, and he's realized that the only way he can overcome this sinful, incorrect, doubtful thinking is by being with other believers that, that are focused on the right thing, that are focused on God. Hebrews 10.25 uh, says, uh, it's a familiar verse, it says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So he realizes all of a sudden, wow, what a fool I was for thinking this way. All I needed to do was put God back at the focus of my road, at the path, center my path, take a step back and realize that he's in control and that really, as we see in verse 18, the wicked are the ones that are set in the slippery places, okay? So he's, he's gone down in doubt, he's made this discovery, and all of a sudden he's going to start rededicating himself. He's going up with this renewed devotion, okay? He's going upward on the circle, he wants to make a complete 360, okay? So it's quite a contrast, right? As we see the start of this third section in verse 18, it says, truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. That's pretty different than, um, than the, uh, the first verse, the, the second verse there of the psalm when it says, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. Now he realizes that the wicked are really the ones on that shaky path then the, that the Lord could just crumble below them. He realizes they're the ones in trouble. Verses 19 to 20, he sees, he sees in a moment that they can be swept away like a dream. Verse 20, when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. 
kind of an eerie uh, description here of how quickly they can be torn away. Uh, now this is another silly illustration, but I don't know why, this is just what I think of to help me realize uh, this. I used to have a dream all the time, you know, sometimes you have these recurring bad dreams. I had one about a guy in our church named Mr. Crane, uh, and he, he had this kind of big beard, and in the dream he was always walking around in this foggy church with a big sack over his shoulder dressed in lederhosen, and I don't know why. Okay, but that was the scariest thing with these little green ghosts all around him. And Mrs. Bauman, another teacher, I don't know if Mrs. Parker will remember her, but she was in that dream too. For some reason, that was the scariest thing to me, okay, and I'd have it almost every night. And I would want to wake up from that so quick. And when I would wake up in a cold sweat, it would just be gone. And you realize when you wake up from these nightmares how silly that was and how quick you get out of that. And I don't know why I think of that when I think of this verse, but it just makes me realize how quickly... The wicked can be destroyed as quick as you wake up from a nightmare, like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. They'll become lighter than a breath. Okay. So he's realizing all of a sudden that he's wrong. He admits in verse 21 and 22, he realizes he's been a fool. Uh, he says he was, he was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. This kind of reminds me of Job. I was teaching the children uh, last week's uh, children's church, I taught them about Job and how God is incomprehensible. And he kind of reminds me of Job in this point because much like Job, he questions God and then that part, the section in Job, I think it's 42, where, where God comes back and says, Job, do you know how the mind works? Do you know where the storms are made? Uh, do you know how the animals are created? And, and Job just feels like an utter fool because he knows that God is so much more powerful and that he was such an ignorant fool. And so that's kind of, he's, he's finally, Asaph is finally admitting himself, or admitting to himself that he couldn't comprehend all this. Now this is where we get to the most probably encouraging, some of the most encouraging verses to me in all of scripture. It's just such an encouraging section. Verses 23, everybody look at it. It says, Nevertheless, after all this doubt, after all this ignorance, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So, throughout all this doubt that he's gone through, throughout all this ignorance, it's not that he's clinging to God and trying to drag himself along, trying to believe. God is holding on to his hand here, okay? He's making sure he doesn't get lost. It's like if I went to a zoo as a child, obviously dad and mom aren't just going to let me go wherever. They're holding on to my hand because they don't want me to get lost. And that's, and that's what God is doing to Asaph here. He's not letting go of Asaph, even though Asaph is being a complete idiot, doubting God's providence here in this first two sections, Nevertheless, you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. So God is not letting him go even throughout all this ignorance. And I find that so encouraging because no matter how many times we mess up or we fail or we doubt, God is not going to let go of our soul. God is with him through this trial. He's helped him. He's held on to him. And now the conclusion, verse 25, starts, he desires nothing else but God. Okay? Okay? 
He's gained a right view of eternity. Uh, everything's right with the world again, kind of in Asaph's eyes. The world offers him nothing. There's no final blessing. He has so much confidence in God now. He's, he's done a complete 360. Okay? No more doubt, just all devotion to God. And he, and he finishes, and this should be our goal too as Christians, he finishes, this, he finishes, sorry, he finishes with this cry of evangelism, okay? In, in verse 28, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. That I may tell of all your works. This is much like Psalm 62. That's another psalm that I was teaching the teenagers on our camp out. And starts off, quick summary of that, David starts off, he's going through trials. He's kind of doubting God and he constantly has to remind himself that God is with him. He's his rock. He's strong. And at the end, he's so encouraged by that that he goes out and he wants to tell everybody else about it. And that should be our, our cry too as Christians is that after all this doubt, we should realize that, okay, we can't doubt God's providence. We have to be continually devoted to him. And then once we do that, we'll be so encouraged that we'll want to share this with everybody. And something I, I've realized on this internship is that when I'm studying the scripture, and, it, and it was, it's nice because I was made to study the scripture, right? I couldn't be lazy because I had so many lessons, and that's not the way I should be studying the scripture. I realized that, but it was helpful that I, I wasn't being lazy. I, I was made constantly to go in here. And when I come to the word, when I'm encouraged by it, it makes it so much easier for me to go try to witness to people or try to tell others about what I'm learning because I'm so encouraged by it. It's just interesting how that works. It gives me so much more of a confidence so Asaph finishes and he has this confidence and he realizes that his present realities are not ultimate realities, okay? His present realities are not ultimate realities. And I'll just finish with this. It's kind of a summary here. Uh, and that's a, the parable in, in Luke of the, of the beggar and the rich man, okay? Complete opposite men. I don't, I'm, many of you probably know this. The beggar, Lazarus, and the rich man. And the Bible literally describes them as poor and rich, the exact opposite, completely different guys. Lazarus is sitting at the, the bottom of the table, eating the crumbs, getting licked by the dogs, and the rich man goes about his daily business with feasting every day. He's like the verse says, he's, he's not in trouble, he's, uh, he's fat and sleek, he's wealthy, okay? His eyes will swell out with fatness. He's like, that, he's like that guy that Asaph is describing in his doubtful section. He's, like the, he's the most successful wicked man that we can think of. Okay, And here's Lazarus over here getting licked by dogs. But in the end, when they both pass away, Lazarus isn't... He, he, he might have gotten licked by the dogs in, 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 in the earthly life, but then the rich man is being licked by the flames of eternity. Okay? It's being licked by the flames of hell for all eternity. And obviously we see that even though we can doubt and we can long for that materialistic lifestyle and, and just the easier life, and we wonder why the wicked prosper. I'm sure Lazarus didn't, wasn't happy with himself all the time. I'm sure he looked at that wicked guy who was uh, prosperous and he probably thought, God, why is he always the one that's getting all the food? Why do I have crumbs? But in the end, obviously, we see that God is just and we see what's going to happen in the end. So I was encouraged by this. Uh, I, I'm encouraged not only to get out of that doubt, to constantly trying to be on that upward side of the circle, that devotion side. 
um, but also to evangelize to these people so that they are not like the rich man in the end. And, and this is just kind of a uh, last sentence here to, to summarize it all. Uh, I said, we must go to God, we must come together with his people, be strengthened by his grace, and then tell of all his works. And he can't get much more simple than that and easy to understand. And it's just a, this has been an encouragement to me, Psalm 73, I hope it has been to you, of how we need to get out of our doubt and we need to rededicate ourselves to God. So that's, that's just something I've been learning, something I've taken to heart over the last couple of weeks. Uh, and I hope that the, the word has encouraged you this morning as well. I'll pray and then you can come back up. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. I thank you for Asaph and, and his honesty um, as a struggling man, struggling, doubting you. And, and I have been there so many times. I'm sure everybody in this room has. We, we often doubt you and we doubt your word and we doubt your providence. And it feels so many times. Uh, it feels so much like the wicked are the prosperous ones and we've been left out to, to dry. And I, I just pray uh, that we would have renewed hearts and you'd help us to rededicate ourselves to you and realize uh, that, that we have no need to doubt you, but we just need to dedicate ourselves to you and, and dedicate ourselves to uh, evangelizing to the lost and encouraging others with what we've learned as well. Thank you again for for this wonderful church, I pray that you'd grow it in your grace and that uh, you just bring others into it as well. Thank you for the encouragement each one of these people is on my lives. Thank you for bringing me back safely to them. And thank you for everything you've taught me this summer. In your name I pray. Amen.